0: This is the widest music stand I've ever seen. I feel like I should be a composer like Chad. Before I start today, I want to just uh, have a little uh, pastor chat right now, just for about 90 seconds. It's great to be here. I hope that you are realizing that God... Isn't finished with ABF. You've been through some tough times. I get it. But you know what? I believe if every one of us had a story to share, we'd realize it's during those tough times that God met you in the valley of that experience. And every time a preacher comes up to preach, he is competing against the following things what you're going to have for lunch after you leave, (laughs) a family situation that's weighing heavy on your heart, a business situation that may not be going exactly as you've planned, and all the time the Holy Spirit's trying to say to you, time out. I've got something for you today if you just shut off all the other stuff. And if you've come today kind of Distracted, maybe for just a moment, we can prepare our hearts. Now, this would be the time that Chad would hop up on the piano, play something melodious. But imagine he's doing that. But more importantly, imagine today that the Holy Spirit is in this place and he wants to speak to you right now. I'm just the messenger. Today, you may want to shoot the messenger because of the message. You'll see why in just a few moments, because I'll go from preaching to meddling, but I want the Holy Spirit to be here to interpret, amen? Amen. Okay, so I know this seems a little weird, but put your hand out, and let's ask God to teach us today, all right, to receive from the Lord what he wants from us today. Lord, our hands are outstretched because we need to hear from you. We got enough other voices that are bombarding our minds right now for our attention, but we want to hear from you today. That's our prayer. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It goes something like this You wake up in the morning, you got a stiff back, your neck is tweaked, you worked out too hard, you've overeaten, you've gotten not enough sleep, and you want to say, Thank goodness there's a God. Or do you go, thank God it's morning, or is it degenerate to, oh no, God, (laughs) is it another day? (laughs) Maybe some of you wake up in the morning and you say to yourself, I'm going to be a better person today because yesterday I was cranky, I was irritable, I was grumpy, I was not nice to my children, and in fact, if I had better children, I would be a better parent. (laughs) See, I know that our propensity in life is to complain. And so some of us are that person. Don't edge anybody today, no elbows today, no pointing the finger, but all of us complain. Take a look at this first slide. Have you ever been around someone who's negative? Do not raise your hand. (laughs) Have you been around someone who nothing was ever right? Nothing was ever good enough. Nothing was ever on track. In a word, these folks love to complain. In another word, I would say these folks are buzzkill because these are the people that drain the life out of you. And it damages friendships. It causes discouragement. And it makes everybody else around them unhappy. And they drag you down with it. The interesting thing is we can point it out in other people's lives, but today I'm gonna ask you to take a look in the mirror at your own life as we relate to the topic of complaining. Its cousin is criticism, and one pastor put it this way. The problem is that, that it's a hard habit to break. We are naturally negative. We tend to look at the bad things in life. We are conditioned by society. Bad news makes the headlines. We are bombarded continuously with what's wrong with everything. By our own nature and by our own condition, we tend to develop the habit of complaining. And so I have a proposition for you. What does God's Word say about complaining? We're in the part two of a three-part series called Getting a Grip. Last week, we got a grip on failure. This week, we're getting a grip on failure. Complaining, and next week we're going to get a a grip on our priorities. For those of you who are wondering if I'm ever going to really teach the word, that's just a little joke. Work with me here. (laughs) The following week we start a series in Colossians, and I'll be teaching you verse by verse through the book of Colossians with a great. Um, opportunity for us to see what God has to say about setting our minds on things above. So that's where we're headed. But today we're going to start with this verse. Philippians 2.14 says, do everything without complaining or arguing. In the King James, murmuring or disputing. So how do you do that? I would like to suggest that first of all, we got to look at the four kinds of complainers. Now, some of you know this pastor. He pastors a really struggling church in Lake Forest. His name's Rick Warren. He says, <laughs> I mean, it's what, only 16,000. Bunch of slackers over there. Their only church I know has to build their own off-ramp so they have more people to get out of church to get into church. Um, but Rick says there are four kinds of complainers. Four kinds of complainers. Here's what you might want to do. Is just kind of do a little mental check and say, do you kind of fall into one of these four categories this morning? The first is the pessimistic cynic. And Solomon could have been a pessimistic cynic. The favorite phrase of this kind of person is, nothing will ever change. Nothing will ever change. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Uh, uh, says this in verse 9, Life is useless. You spend your life working, and what do you have to show for it? The world stays just the same. What has been done before will be done again. Can you see the pessimist in Solomon sharing that? This phrase of kind of nothing will ever change maybe be how some of you young moms feel like picking up clothes and toys after your children nothing will ever change yes they'll grow up and then they just leave them everywhere (laughs) number two maybe you're not the pessimistic cynic you're the pity party martyr maybe moses is this person favorite phrase is no one appreciates me no one appreciates me exodus chapter 3 and 4 you see moses who's stammering before god as to why he can't lead the children of israel out of egypt And then in Numbers chapter 11, this is what he says. Moses said to the Lord, why pick on me to give the burden of people like this? You get the idea? He's going, I got to lead these guys? Are you kidding me? What did I deserve to get the children of Israel that that's my job? I can't carry on this nation by myself. If you're going to treat me like this, please kill me right now. It'll be a kindness. Just let me out of this impossible situation. That was Moses in Numbers 11, and maybe you have had that pity party. It's usually a small party, and um, <laughs> but maybe that's you. The, the, the people who do this, they, they do know how to throw the party because uh, they're sick with misery and pressure, and they will let you know and invite you to come and join them. The third kind of complainer is the perpetual whiner. David had a little bit of this. Their favorite phrase is, This isn't fair. I don't deserve this. Everybody else gets all the breaks. Look at what David said, uh, or uh, Matthew says first, and then we'll look at David. They took Matthew 20, verses 11 and 12. They took their money and started grumbling against their employer. We put up with a whole day's work in the hot sun, yet you paid them the same as you paid us. The parable of the workers there. Here's David. Even David uh, whines in the psalm, and any pastor who's ever had a critic in the church likes these songs. They're called the imprecatory prayers of David. Slay the evildoers! And then you fill in the blank of the names of people that you don't like. (laughs) Psalm 73, verse 13, I have been wasting my time. Why take all the trouble to be pure? All I get out of trouble is woe, or Psalms 55, 17. Evening and morning at noon, I will complain and murmur, and, I will, and he will hear my voice. Thankfully, God is more patient than I am. Have you ever told your kids life isn't fair? You see, the perpetual whiner says life isn't fair. God never said life is going to be fair, did he? And so as long as we complain about the fact that life is not fair, we're going to spend our life spinning like a top, accusing God of being unfaithful, unkind, unmerciful, Let's pause for a moment. I'm sure we could invent some things with very little trouble about things that are unfair right now. And maybe it's in your, in your business. Maybe it's here in the church. You say, God, what were you planning? We thought we had a pastor coming. He would have been here in, in a couple weeks. It's been two years, Lord. What are you doing? You see, when we get underneath the surface of complaining, we're going to see that there's a direct connection between your spirit and your attitude and your heart's response to God. Hey, I'll give you another one. How about Roland? The guy serves the Lord faithfully all of his life. He comes here and does I'm a, a warm, I mean, just an unbelievable job. Here is your interim. And then gets a brain tumor. Lord, what are you doing there? Some of you stayed faithfully married to a spouse, yet they cheated on you, they left you, they abused you, they discarded you, and ultimately they broke your heart. Life isn't fair. God doesn't grade on, is it fair? But he grades on, are you faithful? Life isn't fair, but God is faithful. Well, the fourth critic or the fourth complainer is the perfectionistic critic. And I didn't pick a Bible character. I just picked us today. How about Christians? Has anybody been a perfectionistic critic? I'm going to let you all vote on this. Anybody ever done that? I am. I'm telling you, I can organize a cupboard better than the best of you. I know how to sort things in the refrigerator. I hate clutter. And my poor wife has put up with this now. And it gets worse as I get older. What happened? I wasn't that kind of a neat freak when I was seven years old. As I've gotten older, things just bug me. I'm sure nothing bugs the rest of you, but maybe just a few of us are perfectionistic critics. They say things like that. this, is that the best you can do? And then I have a blank here. You should have what? You should have done this. You should have picked up your clothes. You should have had more quiet time. You should pray longer. You should whatever. And then it's followed with, you blew it. You blew it. So you can fill in the blank with the kinds of things that you should have, would have could have done. You see, perfectionistic critics always are fond at pointing the finger about what you should do, and their opinion becomes your moral obligation. Think about that. They want you to do this, and I'm always glad because usually somebody wants me to do something. When you're the pastor, pastor, we really got to work on this. Really? Really? Is it a we, or is it I should put it on my to-do list? You know, I just want to clarify here. And one of the things that I love about ministry is that the body of Christ, we get to do the ministry, not just me. Now, I love ministry, and I love meeting with people. I love hearing your stories. I even can tolerate about this much complaining. But here's what I do know. God is using you to make a difference in this community. And if we're perfectionistic critics, we just kind of torpedo what God wants to do. Now, granted, the critic, the perfectionistic critic, assumes that he's right. In fact, think about the last time you complained. I'm going to complain. I know I'm dead wrong, but I'm going to complain anyway. Of course not. You complain because you believe passionately that what you our saying is right. How many of you have your kids ever accused you? You're not listening to me. Have your kids ever said, Mom, Dad, you're not listening to me? Hear me out. Am I the only parent on the face of the planet who. <laughs> and here's what I learned I would say, Johnny, Katie, I'm listening with, to you, I'm hearing you clearly. I just disagree with you about your conclusions. Now, they would go, huh? My wife was much better at this. When someone would just snap at her and be mean-spirited in our home, she would just sweetly look at them and say, could you rephrase that for me? (laughs) It works. She's so good at that. A soft answer turns away wrath. So look at the four. Are you the pessimistic cynic, the pity party martyr, the perpetual whiner, or the perfectionistic critic? It's your choice. Now, the bottom line is, the critical spirit is often, this guy, is rooted in perfectionism. You see, we got to control everything. And when we can't, we oftentimes become judgmental. So if you're, the reason I'm camping on this one is it takes one to know one. If I had to pick the four, this is the one I tend to be. Here's a quote, we tend to judge others by their actions, and we judge ourselves by our good intentions. We judge others by their actions, but we're going to judge ourselves by our good intentions. And so we blame and we accuse. Where was the first accusation and blame in the Bible? It's in Genesis. It's pretty early on. Who does it? Adam, think about what he does. Talk about throwing your wife under the bus. What does he do? He goes, The woman you gave me, God. (laughs) Now, ladies, I would not take that sitting down. I would have taken that apple and I would have thrown it at him. Right there, here. Here's one right in your nose. He just totally throws her on the bus. He blames her for his choices. We see in Proverbs, by the way, ladies, why is it? You kind of get it right in the, you know, between the eyes. Proverbs 27, 15, a constant dripping on a day of steady rain and a contentious woman are alike. A nagging wife is like a water going drip, 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 drip on a rainy day. Now, let's just make it fair here, ladies. I'm pretty sure if a woman was writing that verse, it would have been a man example. But here, Solomon wrote it. And here's what he says in Proverbs 21:19. 19. It's a better to live in a desert land than when a contentious and vexing woman better live out in the desert than with a nagging and complaining wife. Well, I'm pretty sure that this applies to all of us. He's illustrating with a contentious marriage. But nothing will destroy a home more than bickering and fighting and complaining and picking on one other. And, and the bottom line is your kids see it all, don't they? They see, dads, when you are short and abrupt and not patient with your wife. Now, I know all of us believe we are married to God's best for us and that you got the best wife, guys. Unfortunately, the best has already been taken. It's in the front row, and, and second place is sitting right there next to Chad. And so, you know, <laughs> right there, right here. we got it, or maybe over here. See, we always believe in our heads that God has brought us the best, until the best disappoints us, and people will disappoint you. So, my question this morning is, what causes us to complain? What's causing this? Let me just give you a theological viewpoint of complaining. Number one, complaining is a form of rebellion in the Bible. You cannot explain it away like this. It's just, that's the way I am. No, complaining and grumbling isn't just a bad habit. I think the slide's going to say it's a sin. It's a sin. Complaining and grumbling isn't just a bad habit. It's a sin. We need to confess it. It's serious. Number two, complaining was the sin that kept who out of the promised land? The Israelites. It kept the Israelites out of the promised land. It destroyed them. Seven times in the Scriptures in that section, it says, they murmured and grumbled. One of the reasons why they didn't get to the promised land for 40 years is because they were complainers. They were complainers. I won't go through Numbers 14 and Exodus 15, but there are all kinds of Scriptures that talk about complainers. The reason we're told over and over in the Bible not to complain is because in essence, complaining is rebellion against God. Check this phrase out. When I complain about my circumstances that are beyond my control, I'm really saying if I were God, things would be so much different. If I were in charge of life, it would be so much better. Think about this. When we complain, ultimately we're saying, God is clueless. Doesn't he know how to get this right? If he knew how to get it right, I wouldn't be in this situation. Now, let me address an issue that's hard. What if you're complaining because somebody in authority over you is morally wrong? What if, let's go as far as they're doing something unethical, illegal, or immoral? How do you live under that? You see, in the situations we're talking about, I only complain when I am... I have the righteous indignation of the living God. See, we want to make our issues about about them, but I bet you there's just a few Bible characters in life who served under unethical, immoral, unjust leaders. You think that might have happened anywhere along history's course? In fact, 1 Peter talks about it, right? You're going to suffer. In fact, all 66 books of the Bible talk about suffering. This is why I always like to go back to John 10.10. I have come that you might have life and might have it more abundantly. Do I have to do the suffering piece? Sometimes, I'll grant you this, your critique and your criticism and your complaint is even valid. But how you're going to process that is a big deal. I'm betting in our church there's a few opinions about things. I'm betting that some of you think some people in this church are completely clueless. I bet you right now that some of you your hands are sweating and you're saying, oh no, please, please don't mention the leadership of the church. Now who is the leadership of the church? We all are if we're believers. We have some elders. Let me show you how many leaders we have in this church. If you're an elder, raise your hand. Okay? If you're a deacon, raise your hand. If you're an elder's wife, raise your hand. If you're a deacon's wife, raise your hand. If you're a deaconess, raise your hand. If you're, if you're a deaconess's husband, <laughs> raise your hand. If, you're a, if, you're, if you've ever led a small group, raise your hand. If you've ever worked in our children's ministry, raise your hand. Forbid on the worship team, raise your hand. Now I could have done it this way and just kept talking until I had everybody stand up. See, all of us have leadership capabilities in this church. All of us are leading in some capacity. And so when we complain about leadership, for instance, we're subtly saying, God's clueless. Why isn't He getting this right? Secondly, when we complain, we're actually doubting God. We're doubting Him. Now, again, I am not suggesting that there aren't times where your concerns are legitimate. So how we process them is going to be very important. But when we complain and we backstab and we gossip and we murmur, we're doubting God. It's like I'm questioning His wisdom. God, do you really know what you're doing? We saw that in Genesis 3, 4, right? Satan uses that. Yeah, you won't surely die. Just eat the apples. No big deal. Number two, I'm doubting God's care. God, do you really love me? Well, if you believe in Romans 8:35, what can separate you from the love of God? Zippo. Nothing, nothing can separate us from God's love and care. Well, then maybe I'm forgetting God's goodness. Maybe I'm focusing on what I don't have instead of what I do have. Would you ever think that a pastor would come into your church and go, wow, look at how many people are here today. This is awesome. Because you're looking in the past, some of you going, wow, I remember when we had two services or three services. and We had a service over at the high school, and this place was booming. You know what I see when I see you? I see overcomers. I see survivors. I see people who are saying, I'm never giving up. I see people who are who are excited about what is God's gonna do, not just looking about the past about what God did. Hey, a good summer attendance for me last year in my little church in Moore Park. 35, 40 people. You got more in your children's ministry than I had in my whole church one Sunday. I was handing out free Chick-fil-A coupons just to come on in. (laughs) We took attendance by counting people who were walking their dogs in the park. Hey, they were within 100 feet. They were ours. (laughs) It's all a matter of perspective. Now, here's what I like to say about just one or two services. When we need to go back to two services, we will. And I hope we have to do it sooner than later. I want this overfilling twice, three times. That's God's prerogative and your choice. Because when you're excited about your church, you invite people. You say, hey, you got to come with me. In fact, you say, i got to get here early because i got to find a seat. In fact, the best seats are the ones right up here. Hint, hint, just move on up. Right? Because God is going to do something if we come with expectant hearts. Thirdly, we complain because we think we have the right. We think we have the right because we've earned it. We've earned it. It's all about me. What does the picture look like? There you go. It's all about me. Deal with it. Well, what do we complain about? We, we complain about financial debt. Well, what if you quit spending so much? We, we, about, we com, uh, complain about lack of appreciation. When's the last time we encouraged somebody else? We, we have no friends. Use breath mints. Um, <laughs> we complain about our church. I, I could fall into that category, wanting my church to be something that it isn't or disappointed that we're not doing this. Let me tell you a little fact. When things are going well in a church pastor takes all the credit. And when things are going poorly in a church, the elders get all the blame. And I realize, I'm not, an, I'm not clueless here, that I've walked into a situation where there's a little tension from time to time. Elders' wives, you've got the toughest job on the face of the planet because at times your husbands are the ones getting the arrows and the and the, the criticisms. We are not... Let me come down here. This sounds like I'm pontificating. I'm not. You know what? None of the men in this church would say that they've acted perfectly in every decision. That has been made. Because the unspoken accusation that ties this complaining message together, and when you're in the interim, did I tell you? I warned you I was going to go from preaching to meddling, and so I'm about to meddle right now. Is that somehow that we always have to get it right perfectly? We're not going to get it right perfectly. We got deacons, we got deaconesses, you got elders, you got pastors. And all I'm saying is, friends, over the next few months, let's make a commitment not just to get it right. Let me give you a little phrase it's not enough to be right, you have to be redemptive. You've got to be redemptive. Each week at a staff, our staff, meeting, I just give a little leadership phrase that's been helpful to me. I was in an elder board meeting this week where we were sharing, and I won't mention the guy's name, but it's not because I he would be embarrassed by it, but it's just illustrative of maybe a little glimpse of what it's like to be an elder here. He said. And I quote loosely, I didn't know that becoming an elder would cause me to lose my closest friends. Now, I am trying not to be buzzkill this morning, but I I do know this. You've got men and women in leadership in our deacons and deaconesses and elders and staff. that are doing the best they can. And somewhere in this process, as long as I'm with you, we're gonna move forward. It may mean that there has to be some reconciliation. It may mean that we have to ask forgiveness of one another. It may mean that we have to say, I gotta give you the benefit of the doubt. It may mean to say, I'm sorry. And ultimately, for any of you that hold a grudge or a bitterness or a grief or a complaint, it may ultimately mean, God, I got to let go of this because it's killing me and it's not glorifying you. It's hard. It's hard. I worked in a situation for 14 years with a pastor who, if you know counseling and family systems, was an adult child of an alcoholic. If you know anything about that system, that produces craziness. And for 14 years, I served faithfully in a ministry that at times I wanted to run so badly and just be gone, but God didn't release me. And so I know how often I felt I was right. I have the right to complain He's not treating me fairly, and I could list the grievances. And in the end, I had to deal with me. Several years later, and I won't get into all the story about it, a former elder confronted me. He said, I think you should call... I'll say his name was Fred. You should call Fred. I go, why? Because you need to forgive him. I said, I need to forgive him? After he did, and I just, and I realized I was hooked. I had been gone from that church for three years, and I reacted so defensively. I've got to do something. I've got to forgive him. I've got to let go. I wasn't the one, and I went, da-dun, 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 da-dun. And then he did the most dastardly thing an elder could do. He said. Why don't you pray about it? Oh, not the prayer thing. That is not fair. God getting a hold of my heart, listening to the Holy Spirit, that is dirty pool. That is not right. Next month, he goes, he slid across the lunch table. Here's his cell phone number. And then he picked up the tab and walked out. So now I'm feeling guilty, he not only paid the tab, but he gave me the cell phone number and he said to pray about it. Next month he goes, hey, aren't you speaking in Orlando in February? Doesn't Larry live in, in uh... or what name am Fred. I using? Fred. I'm trying not to use the guy's name and so I'll just use a different name. Pick your enemy of choice. Adolf. Doesn't Adolph live in Orlando? I said, yeah. He says, aren't you speaking there in February? we will make a long story short. I made the call. I was so anxious. I said, hey, Larry, Fred, Adolf." <laughs> I'd like to get together with you for lunch. Would you be willing to do that? And I was shocked. He said, oh, I love it. Here was the guy that when I left the church and I was there for 14 years was so mad at me that there was no public reception and people called for months going, hey, do you still work here? (laughs) Because I was dismissed in the darkness. And so I confessed to him that day my bitterness, my anger, my frustration, my hurt, knowing full well that there would likely be no response on his end admitting to anything. And I wasn't disappointed because he didn't. But I'll tell you what, I was a changed man. I can't control other people's attitudes, their responses, their behavior towards me, but what I can do is deal with my bitterness, my anger, my frustration, my pain, And it was like this burden just like was lifted off. You see, what you didn't know is when I left that church, I knew something wasn't right. And two and a half months after I left that church, his moral failure was exposed, and he had to leave the ministry. I knew there was something wrong. You see, there are times when your instinct's right. There's something wrong. But how you go about dealing with it is what I'm talking about. Scripture says, as far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. And we're not just sweeping stuff under the carpet. I get that. Anytime there's been a church transition, you know, there's always grandiose ideas of cover-up schemes and whatnot. And, well, we aren't disclosing. Let me just tell you one thing. In churches that are going through leadership transitions, your leaders are always caught in this very difficult position of how much they share publicly about XYZ situation. And it's always involving somebody. It's not just an event. And what they do for the protection of not only that person, but for the body about how much they share. And here's the no-win situation. If they share too much... They're just bad guys at you. You threw the kid under the bus. Why did you, why'd you do that? And if they don't say enough, you're covering it up. It's a no-win situation. As you know, this isn't my first interim. And so I've seen this before in, a, in another church. And so part of what you may come to say me about is you've got something on your heart you've got to let go of. I'm going to help you let go of whatever that is, if that's what you came about. For others of you, you just want to say, hey, I want to meet the pastor and let's go out for ice cream. I'm good with that. (laughs) I'm even better if you're saying, I want to meet the pastor in a four-hour round of golf. I'm all over that. We can do that any day. That can be on my time. But I do know this, is that when we think we have it right, that we've earned the right to complain, it never gets better. It just goes like this. So, Lastly, and you can relate to Charlie Sheen in this one, complaining has become a habit. (laughs) Hebrews 12, 15, this root of bitterness. In other words, we haven't disciplined our mind or our mouth to think before we react. We engage our mouths before we engage our minds, and then we say things we regret. Have you ever said something? This one, I'm going to let you raise your hands because we're all going to go down together. Have you ever said something you wish you could have taken back, raise them high? Now, the good news is I'm not going to ask you, what was it? Um, But we've all done it. We've engaged our mouth, and you go, oh, I want to take that back. Ever said that with your kids? There are some children in this audience. Parents are going, have I ever said that to you? He's going, of course we all have. And so habits are only broken by replacing them with something else. So if you're in the habit of always seeing the glass as half empty, I'm going to give you some steps on how we can see it as half full. So how do we eliminate complaining in our lives? Now notice I say, I didn't say modify, I said eliminate it. How do we eliminate complaining in our lives? Number one, we've got to admit there's a problem. We've got to admit there is a problem. All right? Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen: he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. The hardest thing is recognizing maybe that you're a complainer and you don't want to admit it, that maybe if someone recorded you for a week, what would it reveal about your speech? How much time do we spend griping, complaining, grumbling, and in essence, saying life stinks? Number two, accept responsibility for your stuff. Proverbs 19.3, some people ruin themselves by their own stupid mistakes and then blame the Lord. That's the good news version. You're wondering why these sound so accurate? It's a paraphrase, I admit it. Proverbs 19.3, a couple things under this, complaining is just an attempt to blame other people for the problems I've created. Now not always, but a lot of times we're deflecting and we're complaining it's an excuse because maybe you caused the situation. How many of you ever said, well, I was upset and cranky because I haven't eaten yet today? (laughs) Buy some granola bars, do something, but we, how about this one? I was born this way. (laughs) You don't know my dad. I'm just a chip off the old block. I do know your dad and you're a lot bigger block, you know? The bottom line is we can often deflect that and blame others for our problems. Number two, I excuse myself and put the focus on somebody else. We like to pass the buck. It makes us feel better. If it's somebody else's fault. I used to think that if you preach, they will come. It's the field of dreams approach to preaching. If you preach, they will come. I got to Moore Park all excited. I was from this church of about 4,000 people. You know, it was a kind of those heady days in church growth where, man, there were people lined up to get seats and, and negative, whining, complaining people. If they left there, were like 100 people would take their seats. And so there was always a lot of people there. So it was kind of fun. But you know what? I don't think it's reality. Reality is this reality is Moore Park. Reality is that 98% of churches in America are under 100 people. And so what you're left in churches are faithful people are doing things for the glory of God, hopefully. Loving each other, being a family. And yet sometimes we act like we're our worst enemies. We say things that we would have never said to somebody else, but we say it to each other. So I got there first Sunday. I mean, it's just packed. Now, I, I was well-versed in the psychological filling of rooms with chairs that are spaced five inches apart, and, and then every week in youth group, we'd set up more chairs. Wow, we're growing. We went from 12 to 14. We need two more chairs, right? <laughs> so I know about how to make a room look bigger than it really is or small than it really is and all that stuff. But I realized that some people didn't like my preaching. It was the first time in my life that when I got up to speak, people didn't just hang, I thought, on every word. What's up with that? I had a guy who used to sit right here with his Greek New Testament, seeing if I would parse those verbs properly. Don't nod your head, and don't bring one. All right, no no Greek New Testaments. Just save them for your truth project, all right? But you know what I found out? This is a little true confession I was really insecure, and somehow needing validation by how many people came, or if they took notes, or if it said, that was a great sermon, Pastor. I was grading on all the wrong things. How about, Pastor, that brought conviction from the Holy Spirit? And I believe the Holy Spirit is asking me to change something in my life. Pastor, I really didn't like what you had to say, but I'm going to try to hear the truth in what you're saying. Or maybe God is doing something independent of the preacher, and I'm the sideshow for the main stage, which is what God is going to do in your life regardless of who stands up here. We can be focused on a man and the message. And on the end, I'm saying, how about you be focused on what God is telling you to do about his word? And so I come to you with a whole nother lens. I see you as God's potential warriors ready to take on this city, not in a combative way, but in a way that says we're not content to do church the way we've always done church. We want to make a difference for the kingdom and for eternity. Thirdly, or actually before I get to thirdly, one other point under accept responsibility for your stuff. The Bible says you're going to have to give an account for every idle word. And so Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such as is good for edification according to the need of the moment. Thirdly, ask God for an attitude of gratitude. First Thessalonians 5.18, In everything and all circumstances, give thanks for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Give thanks for everything. You notice it says, be thankful in everything, but it doesn't say for everything. I believe there are painful circumstances in our life that we have to be thankful in, even though we're not thankful for. You have a stage four melanoma. It's hard to be thankful for that. It's hard to be thankful when your daughter miscarries with your firstborn grandchild. We experienced that. It's hard to be thankful when your dad or mom don't recognize you anymore because of their dementia. I get that. It's hard to be thankful for a kid who yells at you, flips you off, and storms out of your house in anger and says, Unconscionable things about you as a parent. It's hard. We're not saying that it's easy. But he says be thankful in that. See, complaining is ultimately that sin of ungratefulness. There's so much more I could say. Romans 8, look at God's hand in those circumstances because he does work all things together for good. Ultimately Paul's my example Philippians 4:11 I have learned to be content whatever the circumstance The circumstances cannot control your happiness Circumstances will always disappoint I've got to learn to be joyful in spite of not always because of Let's wrap let's let's land this plane today What are the results of of not complaining? Philippians 2, 15 is the verse that I started with today. Your character, it's going to reflect Christ-likeness. It says, so that you may prove yourselves blameless. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. That's verse 14, verse 15. So that you may prove yourselves blameless blameless. There's something about when you bear up under suffering and don't whine and complain that there's something about Christ's likeness. God does something internally to you. That's, it's a mystery. But here's something that's even more important. Ver, end of verse 15. It's about your conduct. The world notices it. See, you appear as lights in the world. You stand out. You see, you're so different from the world, which would normally throw people in the bus and complain. Our culture is negative. And so when you find someone who's generally positive, even though they've got plenty to worry about, complain about, whine about, the contrast is so unbelievably obvious. It's like a bright star, of the passage says, in the middle of a dark night. It's so different to be positive in this world. Not, you know, I'm not a big trash talker. I, I don't like the whole NBA thing, throwing down, trash talking, negative kidding. It's not, my, it's not part of who I am. And Paul says that Christians are to react differently to the circumstances in life. And when you do, you're a winsome witness that people just can't, hardly don't know what to do with. So let's talk about this as we wrap. If complaining stopped in your business, what would happen? If it stopped in your home and you made a pact for this week in your home, no complaining, no critical, no tearing each other down, what would happen? Kids, what would happen in your family if you stopped griping? And wouldn't it be great, wouldn't it be great if we had a church that had a reputation that we just don't complain? doesn't mean that we're sweeping truth under the carpet. I understand the balance. But what we say is that we're going to seek harmony, unity, love, understanding. Here's what I know. People get beat up in the world all the time, emotionally. Let's not let this place be the place where people get beat up, all right? Can we covenant together that if we have a concern that we will speak the truth and love to one another, that number two, that we won't gather our troops together and mass armies of support of gossip to, to render a decision? And that in the end, if we believe the best and not the worst about each other, then ultimately, whatever the unjust situation that we're upset about, that we're dealing with, that ultimately we have to give it to the Lord. We have to give that to the Lord. Chad's gonna come and we're gonna worship. And as he comes, I just wanna suggest this to us. I realize that I've been here a whopping two weeks, maybe three if you count the one day I was here in July. Here's what I know I am going to do my best to help you become more like Jesus. Because in the end, I don't want you to become like me. I ultimately, ultimately though I like it on a human level, I don't even care if you like me. But here's who I want you to love. I want you to love Jesus passionately. I want you at times when God moves you to get on your knees and don't care about anybody else in this room. And you Confess. Or wouldn't it be great if I have the elders or deacons or deaconesses and they're up here ready to pray that it would become the pattern of our church, not the exception that you come for prayer? Not because it's some huge event. It's because it's the pattern of life that we do as the body because we care. It would be as comfortable for you to ask for prayer as it would for you to have dinner. And so today, we're going to worship. Chad's going to bring us back to the throne. And I'm going to ask, if in fact that this topic has been an issue for you, that you start owning your stuff today. Confess privately. You don't need to parade up here. You don't have to confess to me. I'm not father confessor. But I do want this. If it strikes home, then do something about it. If it doesn't apply to you, then you pray for the things that God is burdening your heart today. Amen. Lord, we thank you for this morning as we worship you together again right now in Jesus' name. Amen. We're grateful today, aren't we? So let's do something. What are you grateful for? I'm going to lead, and I'm going to tell you something. I'm thankful to the Lord, and it's a prayer to him. I'm thankful that there are young people who are leading us in worship, and that your church has a vision that they're not the church of tomorrow, they're the church of today. I'm thankful for that. What are you thankful for? Say it loud so we can hear it. What are you thanking God for today? Oh, man. We can get over that one pretty quick. Wow. I'll give you that 20 afterwards. Wow. It's just the way we orchestrated. All right, what else are you thankful for? His faithfulness. What else? Our children. Erica, we're thankful for Erica. Yeah. How many instruments do you play? Because I've seen two so far this morning. What are you thankful for God for? You're thankful for our poor woman. Thank you, Casey. Where is he? Is he still here? Because you know what? Yeah, I bet he is. What else? Family. Awesome. What are you thankful for? mature men in this congregation yeah his grace amen Lord we're thankful we started with our hands outstretched so put them out again friends we're thankful now not only for what we've received but for the blessings now as we go and we give with outstretched hands to a world who is far from God who is needy For a world that is irreligious and unconvinced. But Lord, we know that as we reach out in love and compassion and grace and forgiveness, that you can make a difference this week in our world. And all God's people said, Amen. amen. God bless you.